This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we get animated with a brilliant young animator whose work includes Zootopia, Tangled, Bolt, The Wreck-It Ralph movies, and Raya and the Last Dragon. On this episode, she tells us how animated features come to life, shares her love of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and tells us how she became a drawer for Disney. Stay tuned for my creative conversation with storyteller and Disney animating powerhouse, Kira Letamaki. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, it's our honor. You were introduced to me by storyteller Brian McDonald, who said that you were a student of his and one of the most ravenous students wanting to know more about story every day. And I love that. I love that you're so passionate about it. Why are you so intrigued by story? I have wanted to be specifically a Disney animator since I was three years old. I saw Sleeping Beauty in the theater. I was growing up right when home VHS started coming out. I don't even know how I knew it was a job at that age, but I declared from from a very, very young age. I even have a worksheet from kindergarten where I had wrote, I want to be a drawer for Disney when I grow up. Oh, cool. It's just sort of like this God-given thing that I don't know when it started really, but I've always known that I've wanted to do this. And I think it was just something about seeing these characters who seem so real and yet you know they're not real relate to you on such like a personal and deep level. It's like in a weird way, these are so much more than movies because they change people's lives in sort of these ironic and beautiful ways. And so it was so magical and I just I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. But that's what's interesting to me though. It is so much more than drawing. You're doing studies of human emotions and expression and detail of how the clothes wrinkle and what the hair looks like. You're literally bringing a person to life in character development because nothing exists on the page not an eyelash nothing until you begin to do that so when a brand new character gets introduced into an animated movie how many versions of that person is everyone looking at before they go ah oh, that's that's the person so usually our directors can be on these films for five, six years, you know, and we have the character designers who are designing the look of the character. And if we have the voice actor ahead of time, 
that heavily influences the design. When it gets to animation, I always say that we're, we're really just shy actors. We get to make the characters move and sort of hopefully make you believe that those voices are coming out of those characters. But um, we don't have to do it on stage in front of everybody. I can be a mermaid, I can be a video game character. I'm not constrained by what I look like, which is wonderful because you can kind of be any role. But it is in that pre-production time, a lot of times we are doing lots and lots of animation tests to try to find who is this character? What do they walk like? What are their little like mannerisms? And often we're filming reference of ourselves. And so a lot of times when I go into the theater and I'm watching these movies, I'm seeing a scrapbook of all of my coworkers because I see them in the scenes that they're animating. And hopefully I don't think that the audience finds that disjointed or not within the character. All of those little like specificities feel real. And so I think it makes the character feel more relatable. Yeah, even if it's not a person. Yeah. Like in Zootopia's case, you were sort of lead animator on the rabbit, right? Yeah, Judy Hopps, yep. Yeah, so you're personifying the rabbit because it talks and does all the action, but also the amount of hair and ears and things that you have to pay attention to, that is really minutia work, isn't it? It, it is. Um, so a lot of times people are very um, surprised when they find out how maybe tedious animation is. So we do about three seconds a week each animator. Oh. <laughs> so when you get to the end of the movie, depending on how many animators are in the movie, you know, like we each have animated maybe a couple minutes. And so, you know, you're sitting there with whoever you're watching the movie with and you're just like poking them like, that one was mine, now it's gone. That one was mine, now it's gone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> every little blink, every little twitch, every finger pose we're paying really close attention to. So if somebody did five seconds of work a week, you'd think they were pretty ambitious. They were very fast, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You're also working in a pretty good sized team. Tell me how many people are involved in a movie of any kind. I feel like it's probably about 800 people on any one movie at Disney. Now, that number could be slightly off. We have in animation, our animation department, we've had over the years, our team has grown. So now we're about 100 animators. When we worked on Tangled, we had about 50 animators. So we've expanded our team quite a lot. It still kind of feels like this little boutique studio because we're all pretty a tight-knit team and we're each working on our three seconds and showing each other and being like, is this three seconds okay? Because this is going to be in the movie forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the other thing. You are making a legacy piece that all has to come together. This is a more than a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. It's almost that every week, however long it takes to make it. And is it hard to say it's finished? Yes. Animators never, ever finish their scenes. We only get them taken away or turn them in. <laughs> because there's always that sense of like, oh, you know, the spacing on that or the arc on that hand could be better or a little sweeter. And I gotta say, it's very intimidating working at Disney because we have Disney legends still working here. Like these are the people that shaped my childhood. I mean, Eric Goldberg, who animated the genie and Mark Henn, who has animated almost every Disney princess since Little Mermaid. There are our coworkers and they're giving us notes and, and helping us with stuff. Their knowledge is so profound and their experience is so profound that it's like everybody can always point out something. This could be a little better. And so, you know, when you're turning it in, you're like, I, I hope it's okay because I feel like I wanted to fix those 10 things. 
right? You're always very timid about the turning. Like, <laughs> yes. Can I, can I have a few more hours? Well, it sounds cool, though, to be able to have mentors every direction you look that are probably eager to have you on board, meaning they can't lift the weight of, of a full movie and they need people to do clothing texture. They need, everybody has to kind of come along the way. When you started as a, I'll say, drawer for Disney, just so your <laughs> dream came true. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but as an animator, where do you begin? I feel like I came into the studio the very best way. I came in as a trainee. They have a program that's called the Talent Development Program, and it's basically for new graduates. We, they also have one for kids that are still in school. But you come in, and when I did it, it was a six-month program, and you get a mentor. And I would just work with that mentor and do tests. So I did some walk cycles and I did some dialogue tests. And I was working with characters from the movie that was coming up. And it was like a masterclass, basically, for six months. And then they, thankfully, they, you, you go through these scary reviews and they were like, okay, you're doing okay. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll keep my dream job. And then they let me do some production work on Bolt was actually my very first movie that I worked on at Disney. And I was a fix animator. And that actually turned out to be one of the best jobs I've ever had because you are there, a lot of people's work when they turn it in, in my eyes at that time especially, it was perfect. But there would be occasional things where a foot would be going through a ground plane or there would be like a little hitch in an arm that was like swinging by. They were so infinitesimally small that most people wouldn't notice, but we, we want these things to be as perfect as possible. And so they would give me those scenes and say, you can't possibly mess this up, so please... <laughs> <laughs> Please just fix this little uh, right. thing. And but the great thing about this was it trained my eye to see all of those things that normally I wouldn't notice. And I think as an animation student, we always turn in our work before we're ready. And so the part that you always skip is what we call the polish, where you're making everything like smooth and just really singing. You always shortchange that part because you spend all your time up front and then you have to rush at the end. And this job for me was 100% polish. And I remember the very first time I had gotten a scene issued to me, I was in our dailies room, which is kind of like a screening room. And they said, do you see that pop on frame 70? And honestly, I didn't see it, but I nodded my head like I did. And they're like, we need you to fix that. And I was like, okay. And I went back to my desk and I was like, I don't see it. I don't see it. And I was so worried. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was just framing through the shot and I was framing through it and then I was drawing little marks on the arm on every frame. And I could see on frame 70 that it was, the spacing had changed. Like suddenly there was a bigger jump and I was like, oh, I think that's what they're talking about. And so I moved it kind of in alignment. I showed it to them again and they were like, yeah, thank you, that's great. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Not only was I getting to sort of learn and see this polish, but I was also framing through professional animators work and getting to go into their files and see how they were animating these puppets inside the computer, technically how they were doing it as well. And right. so it was the best job ever. I feel like a lot of times it's like, I wanna go back to being a fixed animator because I feel like it trained my eye and gave me an insight into other people's workflow more than anything I've ever done. 
Yeah, and seeing so many different kinds of things. Instead of being the person that is making the fabric on the shirt of the lumberjack, where like you're under a microscope the whole time, you are seeing all those stages and all those frames. What a great way to step into it. And did you applied right as you got out of school? I was actually a computer science major. So even though I always wanted to be an animator, the world was going over to CGI. And so I had gotten advice to learn the computer. And I think I took that a little too literally. And so I went a very technical route, but I was still taking art classes on the side. But when I graduated, I didn't have a demo reel or a portfolio that would have been accepted by any of the major studios. And right at that time, there was this new program called Animation Mentor. Dot com And it was all online. And this was, you know, now we're so used to Zoom and, and all of these things. But this was like, whenever you heard of online schooling before, it was kind of like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. But this was started by three professional animators. Two of them were at Pixar and one was at ILM. And they founded this company. And basically it was online mentorship. So you got to learn animation, but have a personal mentor who was a professional animator working at one of the major studios. And that was terrific because it was the first time I had somebody who was in the job that I wanted looking at my work and telling me, okay, I know you want to be where I'm at. This is what you got to do. This is what you got to change in order to get here. You learn the language, you learn the culture. They're speaking in practical terms to you. Yeah. And it was a reality check too, because it's like, look, this is not good enough to work here. You got to work on this part. That mentorship was really pivotal. And that was about an 18 month program. And by the end of it, I had a demo reel. All of my assignments that I had done along the way in that program, I just put together on a DVD back when we were making DVDs. And I sent it out to a couple studios and Disney called me. I actually, I worked at another studio briefly. I worked on Alvin and the Chipmunks, the first kind of CG movie for there at Rhythm and Hughes. And then I got a call to come. Disney was starting up their talent development program and they hadn't done that since the 70s. And so I had really terrific timing. And again, we had amazing mentors, like some of those guys I mentioned before. And it was like, I had not only my dream job, but I had the people that had literally shaped my childhood there teaching me. I was taking classes from them. It was like, pinch me. I'm in animation heaven. <laughs> right. So it's interesting that you are already a decent artist. You were drawing regularly. You had this mentor. Again, we've mentioned Brian McDonald, who I'm a close friend with, and he's a story guru and teaches story up in Seattle, but he's got some great books out. We've had him on this podcast and I've mentioned his book, Invisible Ink, which is sort of the understructure of story. But he has a new book. Have you seen his new book? The Land of the Dead. Yes, I have it on my bookshelf right behind me. <laughs> oh, it's so fantastic. You know, the art is done by Toby Cypress on that book. And it is really glorious combination of this graphic novel vibe, but it's a hybrid of a story of how stories are told. So you kind of get to see cinematically through the narrator, which is the voice of a crow, it takes you to the land of the dead and back again. And there's just an awful lot of really good content in that book. Yeah, Brian was my beacon of light. Because, you know, I was doing computer science, which has afforded me wonderful, wonderful things. But it wasn't the animation and the art that I was really ultimately trying to pursue. And here in the sea of very, very talented technical people, but you know, I was doing algorithms and things like that. There was this class for you know, basically CG animation, but the premise behind it was that you were going to make a film. And the precursor to that whole class was story. 
and Brian was teaching it and I went to his class and I was like, this is going to change my life. The, the stuff he was teaching was just singing <laughs> to me. Like it was, it was speaking to my soul. And I always felt like story was this elusive thing. Monsters, Inc. had a huge impact on me because that was actually one of the first CG films that I saw that I was like, this is incredible. This is doing what the classic Disney movies were doing for me. But I remember, oh, what a creative idea. How do you even think of that, that monsters that are living in your closet are are, are scaring kids to get their screams to like power their city? I was like, that's not even gettable for me. I don't even know how you would get there. And I was sitting in Brian's class and he was making it like there was story math there. He was making it analytical. And I was like, I don't know that I would be the story person that's going to come up with the next great story. But I felt like I was understanding it and I felt like I could analyze the story and figure out what was wrong with it or how to make it better. And in turn, it really fed into animation because it's like ultimately when I'm acting a scene or I need to know what the armature of that Brian's version of the theme, what that is. And so his class was just life-changing for me. And then I ended up being a teaching assistant for it so that I could just sit in all the time. I was just trying to do whatever I could to just keep like being around Brian and kind of like soaking in his <laughs> brilliant knowledge. And he was one of those people that he actually knew so much about animation. He knew Walt Disney's Nine Old Men. He knew Glenn Keane, who's one of my favorite animators. And you were able to work with Glenn on Tangled. He directed Tangled, right? Yeah, yeah. Glenn was actually like our animation director. So we had two directors of the movie, but Glenn was sort of overseeing all the animation. And that was also a dream come true. And I remember during that film, Brian's book, Invisible Ink, had already come out, but The Golden Theme, which is his second book, had come out. And I gave those books to Glenn. And I think mm. Glenn wrote Brian like a really nice note or something like that. And then Glenn actually flew up to Seattle to meet with him. And it, now they're like best friends. <laughs> it was full a full circle moment one time when Glenn had Brian come down to Disney. And I got an email from Glenn. He was like, do you want to have lunch with uh, me and Brian? And I was like, yes. <laughs> I'm sure Brian feels sort of similar, but it was like, it was a real pinch me moment of like, we used to be at the University of Washington talking about how much we admire Glenn. Now we're here at Disney having lunch and just talking about craft and yeah and glenn is a hugely talented guy and making great work i saw the movie on netflix yeah over the moon over yeah. the moon yeah so i mean it's beautiful beautiful work and the story all of it all the elements of that are what makes something truly magical in the world is when it's not just art and it's not just a little bit of music it's, it's sort of the alchemy of all of these things and then whatever deep humanity is in that story that makes us take it home with us which i know is a part of your everyday work because of where you work but you are not just an artist and you are not just an actress it's like finding a way to know which hat to have on at which moment and then to be able to step back and be critical of your own work and I guess I look at animation in general as a thing that you have to have the patience of an iron saint to say, I'm going to make this thing and it's going to come out seven years from now. <laughs> I have trouble if I can't bake a pie and eat it the same day. And understanding that in this craft, every little mark you put down counts for something. Yeah. It is really, really a slow process up that hill. 
It's, it's really slow. And I, I, you can probably speak to this because I've heard about for writers, especially in TV, where you would get to the end of the week and you're like, these jokes don't work anymore because you're used to them, right? Well, here's the thing. Sometimes they don't work at all and you don't know it <laughs> because the other writers and people are laughing at them just to kind of help out, right? They want you to like their jokes so they laugh at their own joke. That can be a deceiving thing in rehearsals. But when the actors aren't laughing anymore and the crew isn't laughing anymore, you really have to have a discerning taste to say, yeah, it's just because you've heard it five times. Like, we're keeping right. that. Right. And other times you have to say, okay, can we can we top that now, everybody? Like, have, we've, we've sat with that for a few days, and it's kind of like not lo liking the color of the paint in a room. You go, I can't live with this. Like, I can't. Right. We've, right. we've got to start over yeah. tomorrow. On a show like Seinfeld that I worked on, there were times on our feet at filming where we just – it was like that's okay but and we would just running back and come up with a few different and somebody go let's try this line and we'd shoot the last line again or we'd shoot the scene and put a new tag on it it gives your editor some options but also there's an element of surprise uh, for the audience and that's great when you have a studio audience because you can get instant feedback certainly you don't get that in animation until you take it to a test screening and i just talked to paul feig and he said that when he was directing movies like Bridesmaids, he's got a dozen funny, kooky lines. When they get to a one section, they go, let's just have a run of them and see how it goes. Let's just get Melissa McCarthy in this improvisational moment. And they're feeding them to her. Sometimes she's coming up with them on her own. Somebody else is reacting differently. But the bottom line is they now have anywhere from 10 to 20 punchlines on this one moment because it's too expensive to go back and get everybody in the scene and do all of that. Yeah. And you know what? I think our editors do that as well. Not once it's animated, but when our voice actors come in, a lot of times, I mean, they bring so much to the table and so they will improvise off of the lines. And a lot of times those random improvisations make it into the final movie because they were so hilarious. But really when it gets to our desk, we do have to redo work based off of notes and screening notes and things like that. But often we're not animating all of the takes that, <laughs> that people are doing so that the editors would love that because then they'd be able to just pick. But we would finish a movie once every hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, how it used to be done. It's all accelerated because of how hungry people are for the media. And then the pandemic, suddenly Disney Plus is just, the stuff is being swallowed up. And they're like, oh my gosh, the audience wants more. They want more. They want more. And the only thing they can do is go to the production team and press them for sooner deadlines. <laughs> well, it was actually a really nice blessing during the pandemic was that Disney was amazing and they got us all this equipment, some of which you can see behind me, to come and work at home. And we just kept pushing forward on these films. So it was like the whole world was, especially if you're a actor and you need to be there on set, that was a huge struggle. But we were able to go back to our desks at home and continue doing the animation. And so it was really great to have Disney Plus and have that venue for people mm -hmm. to watch it at home and to still consume and see this content. Hey, I want to thank you because you were a mentor for a friend of mine. Her daughter was interested in animation in Colorado, which again, she didn't have access to anyone. And I think I referred you and someone else and she was really into it. And so she contacted you guys directly and had some had exchange where you were able to do what 
was done for you in many ways to be rent a mentor, <laughs> rent a mentor, just over Zoom and or phone calls. And it really, it made a big impact. That was a really interesting thing. I think they later made a trip out to visit the studios and, and you were generous enough to show them around. So that does not go unnoticed. It is my great pleasure. And it's honestly really fun, especially when people are, they're interested in the same thing that you're doing. They love Disney as much as I love Disney. Like it's fun to be able to bring people in and help them because I needed help. And to be able to come to the studio and see this place where all of this history has taken place. Like I just geek out. I mean, even every day at lunch, I'm walking on the original studio a lot and I'm like, I've seen pictures. I'm like, Walt stood right there on that corner. It's fun for me when people come and I'm like, okay guys, look at this picture. See, Walt Disney was standing right there. Now go yeah. over there, we're gonna take your picture. That is really my great joy because I'm literally living the dream. I'm living my dream job. And so I'm very grateful because I did not get here alone. Animation is a team sport. Getting me here was a team sport. And so I'm always happy to help and share that with people. Well, it is interesting because it is a form of privilege. The studio systems are a privilege. The idea of the kind of job that you want to be in, sometimes it's inaccessible. Like, how do you get on the lot? Now that the internet exists, you can do so much more scoping around and seeing early work and development and drawings that that didn't exist. I, maybe it started coming when you were around, but when I was a kid, there was no way you could find out anything. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really hard. I remember the really big thing for me was Disney World in Florida. They had what was then MGM Studios. It's now Hollywood Studios, but they had an animation studio within the park and they'd have a tour and you could go and there was these big glass windows and you could look in and watch them drawing Aladdin or the Lion King. And I remember going on that tour. They had a wonderful video with Walter Cronkite and Robin Williams and another animator, Bruce Smith, who was featured, who I've gotten to work with now. <laughs> so it was, I was geeking out because I was like, I used to watch you on that video. It was like these little glimpses into the behind the scenes. And even on the VHSs, every once in a while, they would have like a little preview before the movie would start and they would show you what we're working on now. And I would just watch those over and over and over again, because that was like kind of the only little brief window into this world that was so foreign to me. I didn't know how to access it. I had gotten like Frank and Ollie's Illusion of Life book and there was an older book called The Art of Animation by Bob Thomas. But those were sort of the only two certainly Disney specific ones. It was really hard. Nobody knew what an animator was when I was saying that I wanted to be one. That's why yeah. I, I didn't even know. I called it drawer for Disney because I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> This, I know, is a long, crazy process. So this is epic advanced question. But I wonder if you can sort of dumb it down for me to take me through the process of an animated film making it to the marketplace from inception to completion. And I know that's a thousand steps. But if yeah. you could kind of give me the chapter headings so we get a sense. Okay. See if I even know them. Everything starts with the story. So at Disney... We are a director-led studio, so our directors go off and they dream up some ideas and they usually come up, like sometimes they'll get visual development artists to kind of create pieces that are inspiring. And so they just, they have an idea and then usually they'll get a writer on and they'll start this drafting different scripts and then you get a small storyboard team on to visualize that script. 
And once you've had main story beats drawn out and that concept is really solid, it'll get greenlit. And then it'll go into pre-production where you get a full story team on and the writers and the story team are basically iterating. They keep adjusting and they put things up on reels and we get to watch these story reels and the entire studio goes and we give notes. I feel sorry for these people. They have to get notes from all of us. <laughs> and then we have a certain number of screenings that we do with the story reels, but at some point it goes into production. So then we start on a CG film, we go into asset production. So we get all of the people, the CG modelers and the sculptors and the riggers, and they build all of the environments and all of the characters. And as an animator, and especially in animation leadership, usually a small team of us will roll on early and we will work together cross-departmentally to sort of build these characters. So as the modelers are sculpting the characters, we're looking at these sculpts and saying, mm, in order for this to move correctly, we might need to change this so that this feels fleshy when mm -hmm. we do this. We'll tweak the design so that it works for animation and it goes to rigging and they put the skeleton inside that model. And then we give notes on how those things deform. And we're really studying a lot of anatomy. And if it's animals, studying those and seeing what does the skeleton look like? How do all these things work and move? And so then we have this working puppet. It's like I play with dolls and action right, figures. Right, right. You know? Good point. <laughs> Once those characters are done, then it comes to animation. And parallel to all of this, our casting department has been casting these terrific voice actors for these roles, and the directors are off recording the script pages with them. So we get the audio for our scene, and then we're off to the races, animating, hopefully making you believe these voices are coming out of these characters. So we're making these characters move. And then after us is a department called Tech Anim, and they do all the simulations on the hair and the clothing so that that's believable. They sculpt all of these things just so that the folds on every piece of clothing is just so. And then it goes to our effects department and they will put sparkles and fire and smoke and <laughs> wind and rain and all of that stuff. It's just amazing what they do. And then it goes to our lighting department. All of these scenes are kind of passed down. So then our lighting department is, I mean, I would assume it's very much like live action, but they're setting the key lights and they're they're making our characters look the most beautiful they can. But they also have to cast the shadows and all the other things that, that light yes. would normally do. Yeah. But yes, that's interesting. They're playing with all the colors and they're, they're tweaking it just so, so that it's the most incredible it can be. And then it goes to render. So then it goes to the, what we call the render farm. The computer kind of hashes through it and it takes all of this data that we've all put, all of our work that we've all smushed together. And then it pops out these beautiful images that are kind of the final images. I've gotten to go to a few of these scoring sessions. So at Warner Brothers or some of these large studios where they have these big orchestra rooms and they will play the work and you have just amazing musicians like come in and this is the first time they've seen this music and they're playing to what they're seeing on screen and then that's the soundtrack that's the score it's just oh, wow. amazing big swelling orchestration live yeah. while you're watching it it's kind of almost like watching a yeah. john williams at the hollywood bowl with the star wars totally yeah. Totally. I, I remember one time I was there and they were giving notes to like 
I don't know, one section, like the trumpet section or something. And there was this violinist that she was sitting off to the side. And, you know, they had said, like, this is the first time they've seen this music. And so I thought, like, oh, well, this other section's getting these notes. Maybe she's going to be looking ahead to see what's coming. Nope. She looked like she was like, oh, they're going to take a while. She bent over. She had her purse next to her chair. She bent over. She pulled out a crossword puzzle, and she just started filling it. It was like she was like so bored <laughs> that she was like, I'm just going to do this instead. I don't even need to look ahead at the music. I was so impressed by well, that. Well, those session players are already fantastic, and this is what they do for a living. I talked to a conductor named Larry Goldberg, and he one time invited me to be in the pit, and I'd play no music at all of the Broadway show Cinderella. And it was a shocking thing to see people reading books. And the woman next to me played a couple of instruments and she took them apart and put them together between every song to clean them, to clean the valves, whatever. And it was like being in the trenches with a soldier that was dismantling and reassembling a rifle, like precision. And then wow. she would finish and she would put it up to her lips and she was right in the song with everybody else. And that was what kept my attention. I was like, wow, this is uh, taking their job seriously right here. That's amazing. I know that they do this every day of their lives, but I'm like, I'm so impressed. I don't know how they do what they do. So now I paused you there. I paused you while we were seeing the music, but we're getting closer to the film's finish here. Yes. We have the music. We have the, the visual. And, you know, they do these other fancy things like color timing, and I don't even understand all of them. They mix the audio. They do all these things. And then we let it out into the world. So... That's at least my understanding of how it works. That was a sort of a great precursor to any kind of animated film because the consumer just says, what's taking so long? I want yeah. to see a sequel. Okay, here's the thing. And I thought this too growing up. You know when you see like a trailer or a teaser trailer? I always thought like, I want to see more. How come they can't just show us now? And what I didn't realize is a lot of times the teaser trailer, that's all we've done. <laughs> right, right, right. We've made three minutes over the last year. Right. <laughs> right. We've got enough to get you interested. Yeah, yeah. So the movie's not done yet. There's nothing more to see yet. Right, that is true. That's very funny. Yeah. I see in the background, I see one of your prized possessions you said as yes. we sat down, which is that yellow script back on your bookshelf. I sent you that, but I didn't realize what a big coup it was. It was just on my scrap pile, so to speak. But you are a big fan of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. So, Brian, in our many hours of talking about animation and geeking out about movies, and he would often tell me stories of a lot of his very talented friends, you included, you know, and I overshare. And so I would tell Brian, like, I love Lois and Clark, I grew up on that. I love it. You know, and he was like, well, you know, my friend Pat, he, he wrote on that. I have a whole series on DVD. I watch it often. <laughs> so I was like, yes, I've seen that name. <laughs> you know, you had mentioned that you had set up, you know, one of your friends to get in contact with me and they had come to the studio. I got a lovely package in the mail a couple weeks later. And it was this script, which means more to me than you even know, because not only as a collector piece, like how cool is it to have a script from this show that I love so much, but the title of the episode of is It's a Small World After All. And that just felt so full circle and so Disney appropriate. And 
that's that's funny. I didn't I didn't realize that. I to give the listener some context, I was neighbors with Terry Hatcher for many years, and I was going about my business writing comedy and doing some other things for networks. And she had an idea for an episode for Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and they said to her, if you can co-write it with a network approved writer, we'll let you take that story on. And what I what I like about that particular story that you might be fascinated by is that Every episode of <laughs> Lois and Clark, New Adventure Superman, Superman would fly. Kryptonite would cripple him. You know, there were all these things that were, this is what we'll do. These will be our effects. So when Terry came to me, her notion of this had something to do with not going after Superman, which everybody wants, but going after Clark. And I liked that. I thought, oh, that's funny. Clark to everybody is a normal guy. Why would you want to take this guy away? So we talked a bit about it. And we came up with the premise that a jealous high school friend, that Lois always got the dates and whatever, that Clark is her boyfriend. So this woman has now made some success in the beauty industry. She's the bad guy. So she wants to kidnap Clark. And when she does get Clark, by default, she gets Superman. She doesn't know she's taking Superman. She's just taking, the it's a jealous boyfriend story. So... The interesting part was we came up with the premise that in her, again, you can have the fantasy leap of this kind of a, of a show where the, the woman's beauty product was she made a shampoo that could shrink people down and then that's how she would go and snatch him up. And then when she got Clark, she put him in a dollhouse with other high school quarterbacks yeah. and people. She had a lot of people that she had stored yeah. up there. She had high school <laughs> issues. And so she was collecting people up live, shrinking them down. And then they were the size that they could be in GI Joe clothes or Ken and Barbie clothes. So the part that I want to get to that's really funny is we outline this and I feel like, well, this is really a different way to use this storytelling. This Now we're entering, they've already had several years of Superman gets into this issue and now he's got to save the world. But, but this is our first time that we can do this with Clark. And so the shrinking was the trick, okay? We need to create some green screen or we need to do something. And the studio, they were so like, no to me. No, 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 can't do that. We're not shrinking people down. I go, you're making people fly. What's the difference? Nobody's flying. It's like, well, we have that set up. I go, yeah, you have that set up. It's called a green screen. So instead of the sky, maybe we could make a dollhouse. And they were like, yeah, I don't think so. And I go, well, how about, if, how about if I break the script down for you and I show you effect for effect that you're not doing more effects and you're not doing anything different. If I want this actor to be on the top of the dresser, we just have to make a big frame that looks like a picture and we don't have to build a whole thing. He just has to be on the matching dresser. So he can be full stage standing in front of a big giant frame. So it was pretty easy, and I think we came up an effect or two less than they normally do, and they they conceded. They were like, okay, all right, I guess so. I mean, it required us to build a dollhouse set and things like that, but it was very, very amusing process to try to convince them that, that the magic they do is transferable to shrinking. Oh. It just was really <laughs> funny. 
That's so funny. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I remember thinking the effects in that episode were really terrific. And one of my favorite parts is where Superman is like complaining. He's like, I'm Mighty Mouse, you know? And he's like <laughs> right. zipping around the room and he's really tiny. And uh, Well, I had a little bit of magic in my background too. So there was a moment where we needed to show him supposedly shrinking down, right? And that was going to be tricky. But what we did was we put him in a robe after he had shampooed because he used the shrinking shampoo. And when he went out to the front porch to pick up the newspaper, we kind of wicked witched the robe so it would fall down. And then there was some little mechanical thing that we could put in the robe where we could move it, like a little moving ball or something. So it looked like he was struggling to get out. Yeah, yeah. And it was just enough combination of real special effect and little magic trick and that it just, to me, it was very amusing to do it. And no better writing partner on that episode than Terry Hatcher because Terry had lived all the previous episodes as Lois. So if I made a mistake or if I pitched something about, well, what if you're, what if they talk about this? Oh, no, no, the uh, Perry's into country line dancing. We established that three episodes ago. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. It was like yeah. a protector. Don't go off the rails here. Had she done any writing before? Because I don't think she had written an episode prior to that. No, she had not. I believe Dean Kane had. And so maybe there was some sense of I could do that. But she had great story sense. We had a tight timeline because between her shooting and my touring and various things, we created what I call as a time budget. Now, you learn to do this when you're writing in sitcom or in shorter form or something on a shorter deadline is you have to treat every working hour as one you have to be practical about. So you can't just go willy-nilly, let's do this, let's talk about that, we'll meet next Wednesday. You know, we looked at it, and I would say we had somewhere between 10 and 15 days to write the episode. Wow. wow. And so I said to her, we have to back construct this, which means we can have seven days for first draft, then we have to have four days for second draft. And they weren't consecutive, so it would be like she was going off to do the People's Choice Awards, and I was coming back from a corporate event in Hawaii. It was like, on that Saturday, we got to put in eight hours, and now we got to work on the polish. You know, well, like we, we had to meet those deadlines of giving it to them, because when you're in TV series land, it's a sausage machine. It's hungry for the next episode. Yeah, well, I was going to ask because I've heard them talk about their filming schedule. They were doing like 16, 18 hour days. Like, was she actively filming episodes while you were trying to write this as well? Uh, she was. And we didn't always work on days she worked, but we would look at that. That's how that those days came together was we're like, okay, we both have that Saturday. <laughs> we both have that evening. Like I would sometimes go to the studio to her trailer if it was a day she didn't have a sequence, if they were shooting a lot of <laughs> Superman flying or something right. <laughs> on a previous episode, it would be like, oh, I don't start work till three o'clock. I go, good, okay, I'll come over. Uh, we'll work from 10 to two and we'll give you an hour to regroup and then you'll be ready to go. That is a really a, a professional trick that you have to do is you have to say, I have to focus at this time. There's just no way to get there if you don't account for every hour you have. 
That is the hardest thing, I think, to just like sit there and say, okay, be creative. A lot of times as animators, we joke about like we're walking the halls, go and get hot coffee, or I go over to the original studio lot because I'm so inspired by that space. But it's like, I'm working right now in my mind. I know I don't look like I'm working, but I am working. But it's hard to just sit there and be like, okay, generate creative awesomeness. <laughs> you make a very good point, which I think is applicable to this podcast, which is that to be creative, it's uncertain about how it all comes together and why there are certain of it at times and other times that you're in lulls, but it is all part of the process. So be kind to your mind. You have to be generous to yourself and gracious to yourself to say, I am thinking and that counts. I think where you make the mistake is when you say, I'm watching movies to help me write a movie. Now you're actually procrastinating and you're avoiding. Or I'm reading books about how to write a screenplay. Look, if you've read three of those, you got to stop reading those books. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever equated it on this podcast, but to me, it's like cliff diving. You have to be cliff diving to be a cliff diver. Right. You don't talk about it. You don't have a little support group about cliff diving. Right. If you survive, you're a cliff diver, and then you can dive again. Right. And each time, the risk to reward changes. So it is all those leaps off the cliff where you're learning. Yeah. And you said you learned as a fixer and you probably learned again when you were an animation supervisor and you learn a little as a head animator, but you come and go from all of those different things yeah. and each project is its own riddle. But I believe that knowing there's always something in the well, there's always water that will come from the well. When your head starts to tell you, I got nothing left, I'm blocked, I can't do that. Then you create obstacles that keep you from having that freedom. Pete Doctor mentioned in our very first episode of this podcast that being in a state of play, understanding that we're doing is playful, keeps your childlike wonder. We're lucky. So if you understand that taking that walk to that place on the lot inspires you, then you should take that walk. Yeah. Some people, they kind of clear their head and it's being on a treadmill or going to a par three golf course. Right. That all counts. Right. If you play every day on the par three golf course for eight years. <laughs> You'll never get it done, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Animators are always observationists. And so if you're not out observing life, then you don't actually have anything to kind of pull from. So it is important to go out and have these experiences. But I always remember Brian McDonald would talk a lot about research and how he would sort of immerse himself in things of the era that were related to what he was trying to dive into. Because you sort of don't know what you're going to come across or be inspired by, or if you're even just trying to get the feeling of something. I like to do that as well, instead of just like, oh, I'm gonna watch movies or I'm gonna read this book on acting. Just say, okay, specifically, what is related to this film, to this moment that I can find other things that were from that same time period so I can just glean something that I don't even know that I'm looking for. Well, it is amazing how many doors open when you do enter that research or you enter that observation, right? Where you go, oh, wait a minute. What if my character ha is looking for this specific kind of jewelry? Or what if this is happening? That's what you do is you're a storyteller. And so storytellers in observation are, are witnessing a lot of things. And a musician does it. They somehow translate it into an emotion, which we can understand when we hear the music. A comedian does it in their joke telling, which is there's an element of surprise. So the setup is all fact for the most part. And it's the twist where we all have that moment of laughter where we go, oh, I'm surprised. So you're doing all of that, of course. But at the same time, you are introducing us to a character 
who we have to feel the heartbeat of. It's kind of a Frankenstein art that you're actually breathing life into things where they become human. It absolutely is Frankenstein. Speaking of like Judy Hopps from Zootopia, I was trying to make her feel like a real rabbit, but she's also anthropomorphic and bipedal. So, okay, what characteristics of studying real rabbits can we put into this character? And then there's the voice actress who is inspiring the movements and some of the facial expressions. And then, of course, I'm acting out my own scenes. The other animators are acting out their own scenes. And so we're all pulling from these little things and making this like a Pinterest board or something like, you know, where we're pulling like our favorite things from each of these and then culminating that all into one performance. So it is a Frankenstein thing, but hopefully it feels not like Frankenstein, like a right. real. <laughs> right. You don't see the bolts out of the neck yeah. and the scars. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Because you're in the process of a Disney project now, you probably can't discuss details, but is it a feature film? It is a feature film. What I can say is it's called Wish, and it'll be out sometime around Thanksgiving this year. And okay. it's actually celebrating Walt Disney Animation Studios' 100-year anniversary. The studio was founded in 1923. Obviously, 2023 is our 100-year anniversary. The story sort of explores the origins of the wishing star. And my character is actually the star. I'm having a really fun time sort of diving into that. <laughs> well, good. I'm going to take that as a leaping off point to wish you much success on that. Oh, and ask you. people to keep an eye out for Wish when it comes out in uh, November. And if you've enjoyed Zootopia or Bolt or the Wreck-It Ralph movies, Kira had a lot to do with that, along with all of her teammates. And we don't recognize animators enough because typically they're in the end credits with, you know, a hundred other names. We're in the crawl. <laughs> you are in the crawl, but we don't have a crawl on this podcast. We very specifically say Kira Letamaki is the star of the show. So thank you and good luck with your upcoming uh, star animation that you're doing. Great to have you. Thank you so much. And again, I still treasure that script and it is a small world after all. So it's so nice to meet you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare